Well, we're in the midst of a new series of lessons entitled The Candles of Advent. Now, last Sunday we focused on the first candle in the Advent wreath, the prophecy candle. And this morning we want to zero in on the second candle, the Bethlehem candle. This second Advent candle reminds us that Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, and our Savior and our Lord, was born in the city of Bethlehem. Now, to help us become better acquainted with this small town, let's do a little Bible study together. Follow along with me in your Bible as I read a portion of the traditional Christmas story as it's recorded here in Luke chapter 2. We'll just focus on the first seven verses today. We'll talk about the rest of it next Sunday, verses 8 through 20. Luke chapter 2, we pick it up with verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to register. So, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came... See, here's where that is. I mentioned that. The time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Now, I want to emphasize verse 4 from today's text. So let's read this out loud together. Would you read it with me? So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Notice right in the middle of that, Bethlehem is mentioned. Now, this Bethlehem of Judea, which by the way is to be distinguished from, there was another Bethlehem in Israel, Bethlehem of Zebulon. This Bethlehem we're talking about this morning is mentioned 49 times in the Bible, located about five miles to the southwest of Jerusalem, some 2,350 feet above sea level. Bethlehem was known for its fertile rolling hillsides, which provided not only an abundance of pasture land for sheep and cattle, much of those sheep and cattle, by the way, were used in temple service, sacrifices in other words, but it also was great farmland for growing grapes and olives and Fig still is to this day, by the way. Originally, the town was called Ephrathah. <laughs> There's that difficult uh, word that Karen had the privilege of pronouncing a little while ago. Ephrath, for short, meaning fruitful. However, when Salma of the tribe of Judah and family of Caleb settled there upon the conquest of the Promised Land, he renamed it Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. Actually, very little is known about Bethlehem from an historical viewpoint, and even less, I think, is known in the Bible. It's very, very limited as to what we know about Bethlehem. Notice the highlights I put there in your notes. Rachel, Jacob's wife, was buried in Bethlehem. Naomi lived in Bethlehem, as did Boaz, Ruth's husband. David was born and raised and then anointed to be king in Bethlehem. The Philistines, Israel's arch enemies, once captured Bethlehem because of its strategic location on the way to Jerusalem. 
Rehoboam fortified Bethlehem into a military stronghold, again, because of its strategic location. We're told that 123 men and their families from Bethlehem accompanied Ezra in one of the first waves of people coming back from captivity to Israel. Bethlehem was prophesied, as we saw earlier from Micah 5 and verse 2, to be the birthplace of the Messiah. So, of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And in his attempt to kill Jesus, Herod slew all of the male children two years of age and under in and around the region of Bethlehem, corresponding with about how old Jesus would have been by the time that the Magi came and all of that happened. And that's it! (laughs) I mean, in a nutshell, that's just about anything and everything we know about Bethlehem from the Bible. Today, Bethlehem is a Palestinian-controlled city of about 10,000 people, swelling into literally the hundreds of thousands every year at Christmas as pilgrims worldwide come to the Church of the Nativity to commemorate the birth of Jesus Christ. Now that leads us to draw some conclusions. I mean, so what? (laughs) I mean, what does this morning's study about Bethlehem have to do in any way with our personal lives today? What lessons could we possibly learn from this Bethlehem candle this morning? Well, let me suggest three thoughts as we ponder the Bethlehem candle together. Number one, the light of Bethlehem illuminates our sentiment for Christ. Our sentiment for Christ. Our feelings toward Him. Our, our viewpoint, our stance, our position, if you will. How we look at who Christ is. Read uh, Luke 2 and verse 7 out loud with me. Let's read this from the contemporary English together. She gave birth to her firstborn son, She dressed him in a baby clothes and laid him on a bed of hay because there was no room for them in the inn. Whatever translation you take it from, it's the same. And I'm astonished by that last phrase. There was no room. No room for them in the inn. I mean, how incredible. No room. The very Son of God. I mean, the Creator of the universe. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, God in the flesh, comes to His own creation. And when He is born, when He makes His entrance into this world, there's no room for Him. Songwriter captured the essence of this irony. No room, only a manger of hay. No room. Here in His world turned away. No room, no room. No room. No room here in the hearts of mankind. No room. No cheery welcome to find. No room. Surely our world is blind. No room. Angels in heaven up yonder watch with amazement and wonder to see the Son of the Highest treated so. No room. He's a stranger today. No room. Here in His world turned away. No room. No room. No room. Actually, that was the world's sentiment for Jesus throughout His earthly life. From His birth in a filthy stable to His burial in a borrowed tomb, there really never was any room for Jesus. And the sad thing is, that's still pretty much the majority's sentiment for Jesus today. No room. 
It's no different this year at Christmas in Springville than it was that first Christmas in Bethlehem. As I mentioned, I went shopping yesterday. I don't like Christmas shopping. (laughs) And and most of the reason I don't like Christmas shopping is just belligerent, obstinate people (laughs) who go shopping at Christmas. I mean... Uh, yesterday I experienced, you know, kids screaming bloody murder, <laughs> husbands and wives, mothers and fathers arguing and yelling at each other, pushing and shoving, and you know, oh, the joy of Christmas. <laughs> and not a not a sign anywhere really of the real reason for Christmas. Everything's Xmas anymore. We've lost sight. I mean, again, there's no room for Jesus. Revelation 3 and verse 20, Jesus says, Listen, I'm standing and knocking at your door. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. Some of you have heard me mention this before. You know the famous painting by Holman Hunt? of Jesus standing at the door. Do you know which one I'm talking about? It's kind of in a earth tones, you know. It, it, I, you see it lots of places, but here, here's this kind of amber tones and Jesus is standing at the door. Very famous painting. After He painted that painting, He, he unveiled it to some of His closest friends before He went public with it because He wanted their reaction to it. And One of the first things that His friends said to Him is, you made a mistake. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean I made a mistake? There's no doorknob. And Holman Hunt said, well, that's not a mistake. <laughs> that is on purpose. And if you look at that painting, next time you see that painting, take a close look. There's no door on it. There's no latch. There's no handle on the outside of the door. Why? Because the door has to be opened from the inside. Isn't that incredible? I think Holman Hunt captured the essence of it all. I mean... You've got to understand, Jesus is all-powerful. He could force us, literally force us, to make room for Him in our lives. But He doesn't. He just knocks and He calls your name, my name. And we're the ones who have to open the door of our hearts and of our lives to Him. So here's the first application question today. Am I making room for Jesus in my heart and life? today. Am I making room for Jesus in my heart and life? That begins, of course, with our receiving Him into our heart and our life as the Savior and Lord of our lives. Where we say yes to Him. I mean, the whole plan, the whole purpose that God sent Jesus was for our salvation. And opening our heart's door to Him as the forgiver and the leader of our lives, that's the first step. That's the most important step. To say, yes, I want I need you to be my Savior. I need you to be the Lord of my life. But it doesn't just end there. It's not a one-time thing where we you know, answer an altar call or you know, we bow our knee and pray a prayer. No, it's a lifestyle. It's, it's an everyday thing. Every single day of our lives, we invite Jesus into our hearts and into our lives. We open our lives up to Him. We surrender to Him. We yield to Him on a daily basis. Every day Jesus is knocking, wanting permission to enter your life, wanting permission to be the leader of your life. Every day He's calling your name and every day we must respond. Every day we must respond. 
We've got to open that door that nobody else will open. That's especially true, I think, at Christmas. Will you make room for Jesus in your Christmas this year? I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about you know just spelling Christmas instead of Xmas. I'm talking about I mean really making room for Jesus in your Christmas, letting letting Him be the center of your celebration this year, letting Christ be at the focal point of it all, letting your family and your friends know that this is all about my relationship with Jesus Christ, and I have opened the door of my heart and my life to Him. And so first, the light of Bethlehem illuminates our sentiment for Christ. Are we making room for Jesus in our hearts and in our lives? Number two, the light of Bethlehem illuminates our sustenance in Christ. Our sustenance, our everything we need, our ability to continue on. In Christ. I think it has to be more than a coincidence that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That's not coincidence. Jesus himself said several times, I am the bread of life. And certainly that reminds us that he is our sustenance. Our spiritual life is sustained in and through him alone. Turn with me, would you, in your Bible? to John chapter 6. Let's all turn there. I'd like to take a few moments and look at some verses here. And it's important, I think, for you to have your Bible open so you can follow along because I'm going to do some reading. It's on page 1657 if you're using the Pew Bible. I don't want us to miss the significance of this thought that Jesus is our sustenance. Here at the beginning of John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the (laughs) 5,000. And crowds, multitudes are following Him. But for the wrong reason, folks. They're just along for a free lunch. Hey, this guy's better than McDonald's. I don't have to pay for anything to eat. There's no commitment. And so Jesus confronts them about that. Let's pick up the story in verse 26. It says, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You see, he just hits them right square between the eyes. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In other words, Jesus standing right there in front of him is saying, the work of God is to believe in me, the Savior. So they asked him, what miraculous sign? Boy, don't they go to that all the time? What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see and believe it? Believe it, you. What will you do? Our forefathers here, so they got a sign here. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. It is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus, oh, that was a perfect... Jesus loved that introduction. Look what He does. He takes that 
And he said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about himself, yes. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Let's skip down to verse 47. Can you do that with me? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. There it is again. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, they were clueless. (laughs) They weren't getting it. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. For My flesh is real food, and My blood is real drink. Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood remains in Me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent Me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on Me will live because of Me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Down to verse 66. From this time, many of His disciples turned back and no longer followed Him. He weeded out the crowd, folks. (laughs) He had all these multitudes following Him because of a free lunch. And... And then he calls them to commitment and when they had to sign on the dotted line, they turned around and walked away. And so look at verse 67. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Oh, I love Simon Peter's answer. Verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that You are the Holy One of God. Now I want to go back to verses 56 and 57 and have you read them out loud with me. Would you do that? Let's read these together. Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood remains in Me and I in Him. Just as the living Father sent Me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on Me will live because of Me. I want to emphasize there's two key phrases there I don't want you to miss. And those are the phrases, remains in me and feeds on me. Those are actually in the continuing sense or tense of the verb there. It really literally should be translated, those who continue to remain in me, those who continue to feed on me. Now, why is that important? Because... The bread of life is only good now. I want you to hear me on this. I don't want you to miss this. The whole context of what the Jews were talking about was this manna. Remember the story of the manna in the Old Testament? How they would get up in the morning and they would gather just enough manna for how long? One day, except on Friday. They gathered two days worth on Friday because they couldn't gather any on Saturday, which was the Sabbath. What happened if they gathered more than one day and they tried to save it to the next day because they were lazy and didn't want to get up too early uh, to gather it? It would rot, rot. yeah. It It would turn with worms in it and everything, the Scripture says. It's an awful picture. What did that teach the Jews? That taught them daily dependence upon 
that manna, that bread in the wilderness, if you will. Well, so it is with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Hello? Jesus taught us to pray, give us today our what? Daily bread. It's only good for the day. He is our, yes, He is the living bread. He is the bread of life. But we must feed on Him. We must remain in Him every single day, continually feeding on Him, continually allowing Him to be the sustenance of our lives. And so here's the second application question this morning Am I remaining steadfast in my relationship with Jesus each day? You are not going to get enough bread on Sunday morning to last you the whole week. Hello? You have got to be in His Word. You have got to be in prayer. You have got to be walking with Christ in His Spirit. You have got to be in fellowship with Him on a daily basis. You have got to be remaining in Him and feeding on Him on a regular basis. He is the daily bread of your life. And so second, the light of Bethlehem illuminates our sustenance in Christ. Are you remaining steadfast in your relationship with Jesus each and every day? Number three, the light of Bethlehem illuminates our service to Christ. Our service to Christ. Earlier when we lit the Bethlehem candle, Craig and Karen read from Micah 5 and verse 2. The Lord says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are one of the smallest towns in Judah, but out of you I will bring a ruler for Israel. Here's the specific prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And don't miss this. It was in Bethlehem, one of the smallest towns, it says, in Judah that Jesus was born. Not in Jerusalem the city of the kings, not in Rome, the city of the emperors, but in Bethlehem, a relatively obscure and insignificant little village. What's my point? Simply this. God often chooses the smallest, the least, the weakest, the seemingly insignificant to accomplish His purpose and plan. Do you ever notice that? In the Bible? How that is true? When God needed a leader to deliver His people from bondage in Egypt, He found an 80-year-old outcast in the Sinai Desert. (laughs) Moses. When God needed a righteous king to rule over His people, He anointed the youngest son of an obscure family in the smallest tribe in all of Israel. David. When God needed someone to give birth to the Savior of the world, He sent His angel to an unknown village in Galilee to a young virgin. Mary. And yes, those may be famous names now, but understand, when God called them into service, they were nobody. Then there are others God used who remain unnamed. For instance, who knows the name of the little boy who provided the five loaves and two fish for Jesus to feed the 5,000? Nobody knows. Who knows the name of the person who provided the donkey upon which Jesus rode during His triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Nobody knows. Who knows the name of the family who provided the upper room for Jesus for His last supper with His apostles? Nobody knows. 
And on and on I could go. You see, when God's looking for a person who will faithfully serve Him, He often chooses the smallest, the least, the weakest, the seemingly insignificant to do so. So here's today's third application question. Am I giving all that I have and all that I am to be used by Jesus today? And the reason I want us to ask ourselves that question is because some of us can sit back so easily in our pews and we can say, I'm nobody. (laughs) How could God possibly use me? I don't have a bunch of talents. You know, I'm just little old insignificant me. (laughs) You know, how could God possibly use me? I don't have anything to bring. Yes, you do. You have you. You have you, and, 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 and when you bring you, <laughs> when you bring all that you are and all that you have, no matter how insignificant you may think that would be, God does miracles. Just like He did with the five fish, the loaves. Five loaves, two fish, right? Got it backwards. God can use you if you'll let Him. if you'll let Him. So third, the light of Bethlehem illuminates our service to Christ. Are you giving all that you have and all that you are to be used by Jesus today? Three lessons to be learned then from this Bethlehem candle. Three practical applications for our lives. Three questions that we must answer today. Isn't that amazing that we could learn something from this little town of Bethlehem? Are we making room for Jesus in our hearts and lives today? Are we remaining steadfast in our relationship with Jesus, the bread of life, the daily bread of life? Are we giving all that we have and all that we are to be used by Jesus? Even though we may think it's insignificant, God can make mighty things out of it. The Bethlehem candle. Let's wrap up this second lesson in our Advent series by taking a closer look at those words from the fourth verse of the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. We sang them earlier, and we're going to sing them to close our service here in just a moment, but I want us to say them out loud together right now. Would you do that with me? Let's say these out loud. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. That's the Bethlehem candle right there (laughs) in a nutshell. Let this child of Bethlehem be born in us as the Savior and the Lord.